Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Stage Door Johnny, the podcast about theatre and life and life in the theatre. My name's Jonathan Cake, and I have some kind of man flu. But it's England, it's January, it's practically compulsory to have some kind of airborne filth. So here I am. (laughs) But I am extremely cheered by the episode that I have for you today. I'm going to say that this episode contains more great stories about the theatre per square foot than perhaps any other episode I've done before. It features uh, a chat with two brilliant actors who just happen to be married to each other, the power couple that is Emily Mortimer and Alessandro Nivola, and to make things even more piquant, it was recorded in front of a live audience at German Street Theatre just before Christmas last year, 2023. And M and Sandro put on the most fantastic show for the lucky audience. So Alessandro, if you don't know his credits, and you should, won the Screen Actors Guild Award, the British Independent Film Award, for his performance in Disobedience, a brilliant film if you haven't seen it. Ah, he was in Jurassic Park. He was in Face Off with John Travolta and Nicolas Cage. He was in American Hustle with his then co-star in The Elephant Man on stage on Broadway and in the West End, Bradley Cooper, uh, who gets a lot of coverage in our upcoming conversation, for which Sandro was nominated for the Tony Award for his performance in The Elephant Man. His list of collaborators in, what is it now? almost 30 years of making movies is like a who's who of American cinema. He's about to play a rhinoceros for Marvel, for goodness sake. He's just one of America's best actors. Emily is an independent spirit winning uh, film actress for Lovely and Amazing. She, Lovely and Amazing. Do you remember Emily and Lovely and Amazing? That's bravery. If you don't know what I'm talking about, <laughs> it's, it's brave and amazing. She's worked with Martin Scorsese twice. Come on. She is in cultural juggernauts like Mary Poppins, and she's in the upcoming Paddington 3. She's also the writer, director, producer, star of Doll and M, also featuring a young ingenue called Jonathan Cake. Uh, And she was the director and adapter of uh, Nancy Mitford's Pursuit of Love. She is the writer of an upcoming Noah Baumbach movie starring George Clooney. I mean, she's a powerhouse, Emily. They are just an extraordinary couple. So I'm going to transport you now to 
the beautifully intimate surroundings of the German Street Theatre in the heart of London's glittering West End just before Christmas, a chilly night. Oh, thank you, Stella, Pal Jones, and your amazing team at German Street. Thank you so much for hosting us. There'll be more. I can't wait. All right, here's Emily Mortimer and Alessandra Nivola. Ladies and gentlemen of the Stage Door Johnny Company, this is your beginner's call. Mr. Cake, Mr. Nivola, and Ms. Mortimer to the stage, please. This is your beginners. Do you mind me, do you mind me sitting in between you? <laughs> no, we, like we of, need you to sit yeah. between It's like an episode of Mr. and Mrs. Yeah. <laughs> where we find out how much you know about each other. Yes. You are married. Yes, Good. I believe so. Just checking. <laughs> Very strong morals policy yeah. on this <laughs> podcast. And you didn't meet on stage, but you did meet doing Shakespeare. It was a Shakespeare musical, so it may as well have been on stage. Right. It was Ken Branagh's film of Love's Labour's Lost. And do you think that that particular environment, that charge the charge verse the <laughs> songs nathan lane do you think that was helpful in your courtship did it well, have anything to do with it no, it no what had to drama? do what had to do with it was that i was living in la at the time and my next door neighbor was leonard cohen's son who is a guy named adam cohen oh, yeah um, also a musician and he was in a band that was touring around europe and he had just come back to L.A. when I got this gig to go and be in Love's Labor's Lost. And I told him that I was going over there. And he called me over to his apartment and said that he had something for me to give me. And he dug in his drawers and he took out all these like little bits of paper clips and lint. And, <laughs> and there was a little rolled up piece of paper with a phone number on it. And he put it in my hand and he said, this is the number of the hottest girl in London. And I was like, okay, you know, and he said, take it with you, call her when you get there. And I said, well, how did you meet her? And he said, he was at an audition for Moulin Rouge, the film, the Baz Luhrmann movie. And they were calling in musicians and singers and stuff to play the Ewan McGregor part because he, they hadn't figured out how they were going to cast that. And in the waiting room, He'd been sitting there and there was this beautiful girl there that he struck up a conversation with. He told her that he was doing a gig that night and he got her number and said, Why, you know, I'll call you and see if you want to come to the show. And she said, okay. And he called her and she never returned his call. Oh. But he had the number and he gave it to me. So I flew over, <laughs> you know, like I thought it was the stupidest thing. Like I'm going to call this girl and say my friend, my next door neighbor in L.A., Got your number at an audition for Moulin Rouge. You didn't call him back, but maybe you'll call me back. <laughs> and uh, I showed up at the Athenaeum here in Piccadilly, and I unpacked my stuff, and uh, there was like a packet of information that had stuff about the, about the movie. And I was brushing my teeth, and, and uh, I was going down the cast list in this name looked familiar. And I 
took out my emptied my pockets and I took out the little piece of paper. I wish people who will listen to this on the podcast could see the acting. Oh yeah, yeah. So everyone's yeah. noticing the detail, the physical detail. Don't stop. I know how to use my hands. You sure do. <laughs> I'm with you on the cheese and the. Hang on, wait. Do I still have that? Am I wearing the same trousers that I put the piece of paper with her number in? I haven't even done in the accent. That's yeah, really good. And so I I unrolled the paper and she was in the movie. And so, I had like one line in the movie. Well, wait, wait, I, you, okay, I, we sorry. don't know it's you okay, yet. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> no, you're right, we don't. <laughs> and uh, I showed up the first day to rehearsal, and the rehearsals, it was like the, you know, Fame, the kids from Fame or whatever, like the the way that he had organized the rehearsals. We were filming as Shepperton, and it was like rehearsing for a play, because he designed this production like a Busby. Barkley musical, and we had to learn all these, um, you know, Cole Porter and Irving Berlin songs and all this dancing and everything. So there were two weeks of rehearsals, and we had our like little tap shoes on and our backpacks, and we would go from room to room to these different rehearsals. And so the first day I walked in and with my little knapsack on, and uh, I said, you know, which one's Emily Mortimer? Sure, you would have known. And they <laughs> pointed the me over to her, and. There she is. And he was dead right. And I went up to her and I said, I have your phone number. And, Direct, and, and she was like a little taken aback. Creeped out. <laughs> and no, I, I explained that, was, that. That was the American way, maybe. Sure it was. Yeah, <laughs> brash, brash, direct. It. Got it. And sure enough, you know, he was, he was right. And two weeks later, I, I invited her out. <laughs> And she couldn't go, and she invited me instead to go to this Russian wedding that no, she had to go to. No, you invited me. You called me and said, do you want to go to the movies? And I was like, yes. And I can remember thinking, oh, God, because I thought you found me irritating because I was always on my mobile phone. That's true. <laughs> and I, I kept saying to my mom, there's this American guy that really hates me because he's always complaining <clears throat> that I'm on my phone. And she said, that's the one you like. And I was like, no, I don't. He's sort of just annoying and annoyed mm. by me. But then he called me up and asked me out. To the movies, and I can remember this feeling of excitement as, I, as he called, and I said, "Yes, I'd love to come." And then I put the phone, and then I remembered I was going to a Russian wedding where I was doing a reading. I couldn't go to the movie, so I had to ring him back and say, "I'm doing. I can't come. I'm so sorry. I'm doing a reading at a Russian wedding." And he said, "Well, why don't I come too?" And it was Valentine's Day, the oh. day of the Russian wedding, and he was so bold. And he, we went out for lunch, and then we went to this Russian wedding in a Russian church. And he held my hand. Oh God! On, on Valentine's Day. So and, <laughs> sorry, don't let me stop you. This is amazing. Keep going. This is written well, by Richard it, Curtis. It, anyway, I ended up bringing her home to, to right. Adam Cohen. Oh. That's the long okay. okay. story short. <laughs> and I was like, Powerful image. You told me to bring her home. Got it. So Cole Porter and uh, a Shakespeare comedy really had nothing to do with it. It could have been a, a film the... by Gary Old, could be nil by mouth. and you would. Yes, it wasn't very romantic. And actually the yeah. end product wasn't, it is really sweet, but it wasn't that good. It was, it was in fact, it was in well, People magazine of the year two, as one of the worst films of the year 2000. <laughs> <laughs> I it, often think that people are more bonded by the disasters yeah. artistically. It, it, it was. It had great. It was sort of ambitious and sweet. It was a like beautiful, glorious. I love how she failure. says that, and she's like, "I only had three lines. I, and I was the lead role." <laughs> <laughs> no, it was adorable. But wait, on-set romances or backstage romances are a very common thing in our business. 
Do you think there's a reason why? You might have had something. Well, I don't want to say the person. Start who that way. The person, person who whooped uh, when we said welcome to Stage Door Johnny Live. It's true. We did meet on a on a TV set for a show called Marriage. Hilariously, <laughs> a life imitated bad art. But I'm just curious about why you think this is, and I and I suppose I've got a theory behind it. Yes. Tell me what you think of this theory. That and this applies, of course, to not just sort of falling in love or romances when you're acting with somebody. The body doesn't know that the brain is lying. Just let that sink in for a minute. <laughs> what do you think of that? The body doesn't know that the brain is lying. The brain, neurologically... The, the brain doesn't it, know what to make but of no, the statement. No, I know. I know what you're saying. You're saying when you pretend to fall in love with someone, you kind of do a little well, bit. Or if you're yes, pretending because, to hate someone, maybe you do a little yes, bit. Yes, because as actors, I think we don't really talk about this enough, that... Actors, of course, you know, famously get a bad rap for sort of being self-absorbed and narcissistic and all those things, which are sometimes reasonable accusations. But there is another side of it, which is actually, I think, neurological and physical, which is that we go into this state where you are telling yourself to feel something and then sort of blaming your body for feeling it. We, you know, I've done plays on stage where I... You know, uh, I played Anthony, Anthony Cleopatra. A poor guy tries to kill himself, botches the job, and spends the rest of the sort of 20 minutes stage time bleeding out, like the Tim Roth character in Reservoir Dogs. And of course, every night I came off from that, and my neck and shoulder and my back were crippled. And I suppose afterwards I thought, well, what was I expecting, really? How can you send your body the signals yeah. that you are committing to this idea without having physical pain? And the same is true, I think, for our hearts yes. or any other part of us. When we are, you know, falling in love, pretending to fall in love, it's a very potent mixture of dopamine we're sending around the body. Does this sound like bullshit no, to you? No, no, I totally, it, but I think you're completely right. The only thing in our instance is that I was pretending to fall in love with Adrian Lester and right. he was pretending to fall in love with <laughs> Alicia Silverstone and we right. didn't fall in love with either of right. those people, but we fell in love with each other. Yeah. Or they didn't fall in love with us. Maybe that was more the problem. Because <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I can... <laughs> but anyway, no, but I think you're right. I mean, right. I definitely think you... that you go... Yes, you go through something physically that sort of is very similar to the thing that you're pretending to go through yeah. and then that can be and also but the other thing about falling in love with somebody on in a movie or I don't haven't done it really in a play we were married in a I think uh, we were having an we're, affair we're having an affair sure we were We've having a play an affair. together we'll get to that yes <laughs> but, but, but it was already a bit toxic and weird wasn't it it wasn't like we fell in love well, I think between us no <laughs> but anyway but what I mean is that Falling in love or pretending to fall in love is actually quite embarrassing in, in, a, in a movie or a play, I have found. I mean, in movies more than plays, as I said. And so you're bonded together by the sort of ridiculousness mm. of it, especially doing love scenes where it becomes incredibly sort of intense and sort of earnest. And everybody gets very serious and sort of looks at the floor and gets these sort of weird, hushed voices. Like, it's more like a funeral than a sort of love scene. <laughs> and everybody's sort of very respectful and talking in these hushed tones. And the director's saying, now, move her hair from her face and touch her breast or whatever. And it's just like the least sexy <laughs> thing ever. And you're kind of just bonded. You kind of fall in love with the other person because you're just both in such excruciating right. misery. 
and it's so embarrassing and everybody's handing you sort of bathrobes and sort of telling you to sort of, I don't know, sort of feeling sorry for you. Right. And then it's just ridiculous and funny and you're in it together and then you come out of this day just feeling like you've been through some horrendous experience together. And I think that maybe is more, well, in my experience, oh. that sort of bonding. But, yeah. but I do know what you mean. I, I mean, do you feel that, Sandra, that when you act something, you kind of, your body feels it? The idea that the, the mind, the body doesn't know the mind is lying, but that, that acting is a form of lying. And we communicate these very strong thoughts to our bodies and the bodies think it's the real thing. This is all too intellectual for me. I just like the relief of acting for me is that I don't think about it in those terms. <laughs> got it, got it, got it. Let's do, let's do this and then, and then instead. Do you remember when you were first on stage? Vaguely, yeah. I was very, very young. I was uh, in a furry outfit in a school play. The first few roles that I had were f I was in furry outfits <laughs> to the point where I, I started thinking at one point that maybe I had misinterpreted the signals of what my career was path was supposed to be and that instead I was supposed to be a furry. An animal. <laughs> you know those people who dress up <laughs> and go around with like tails and things <laughs> and like Wait, which paint, put wi implant whiskers on their faces <laughs> which, <laughs> rather than acting. Well it's still time. Um, which furry animal just stands out most? Well there were there were two formative ones. The, fir the fir <laughs> This is so lame. I, the, the first one was a a hedgehog. Oh, good. In a Winnie the Pooh play. Not furry, prickly. Well, no, mine was furry. They didn't. <laughs> that, was, that was beyond my mother's duality of to, the hedgehog. To sew in the actual quills. Your and, mother made the costume. Yes. Oh, yeah. That's, that's All my stuff. costumes for years. Amazing. Yeah. I wonder where they are. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> um, anyway, I just had to pull a, a poo out of a hole with like a bunch of other. Like I was at a, at the end of a line of. <laughs> of other furry animals I just had to like come on I came on for 10 seconds I just pulled and out he came and then off I went that was it and then the second one was was Toto in uh the Wizard of Oz oh that's a good part it was a part I had auditioned for the the Cowardly Lion and I didn't get it oh. and uh but they gave me Toto and no, I no lines. really like turned it to my advantage. I thought that um, psychologically it was a win. I came home and told my parents that I didn't have any lines, but I was in every scene. <laughs> and scene stealing. Yeah, dog nah, on stage. I, I don't think I stole much, but I I was there. Do you remember your first time on stage? Yes, I was mustard seed oh. in a midsummer. Now you see this. I think we're seeing the difference between the classy. And the... This is why Adam Cohen was like, you know, you want to find out what Emily Morton was up to. Mustard seed in Midsummer Night's Dream, yes. as opposed to a hedgehog. Yeah. Got it. But I didn't. I mean, I, does mustard seed even have any lines? Maybe one or two mm. at my at Kensington High School for girls. Very good. Yes. Do you remember being excited? Was it was it was it a, a I do remember thing? feeling really excited that I was chosen to be mustard seed and feeling sort of amazed. But it was I was really young. I was probably only about eight or something. So it wasn't yet the terrifying thing that theatre became. And I experienced I really my first proper performance was when I was about 
14 and I joined the speaking competition, school speaking competition, which was so strange because I was the really shyest, the most sort of freakishly shy person where I couldn't, I literally couldn't put my hands up in class without going puce red. And I never wanted anyone to come to my house or go to anybody else's house. And I was just in a constant state of sort of mortification and embarrassment and, and shyness. And I don't know why. Actually, we were talking about this earlier today with your kids, the feeling of like when you're a very shy person, there's a feeling of like the only way you can actually sort of exist is to do the scariest, bravest thing somehow. Mm. Like you literally, it's almost like you just have to sort of force yourself to jump off a cliff or you wouldn't do anything. Robert De Niro, his son told me the same thing about him. Oh, really? really? I knew I had a lot he of comments. his Robert son in the Bernie Madoff TV yeah, show. But to get that job, I had to go to meet him on a yacht off the coast of Corsica. That's dreadful. And I ended up staying for three days. And in that time, there was, you know, a lot of extreme sports that were happening, which like was a kind of, I guess, a sort of test uh, of my manhood or something. And we found ourselves like, riding jet skis at top speed, sort of, you know, side by side, you know. <laughs> and then, like, the yacht had, like, a... It actually wasn't a yacht. It was an Arctic icebreaker <laughs> that had been converted to a luxury boat. The front of it was, like, 50 feet off the sea, you know, a big, sharp sort of thing that would cut through. And he said, you know, my sons and I are going to jump yeah. off the bow of the boat. Don't stint on the dinner. And uh, <laughs> I'm sensing you know, you're holding back. <laughs> I'm going to keep holding back. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, he said, want to come? And I said, uh, okay, you know, so up we went. And he just swanned us. No. Robert De Niro? Off the, off the like. He's an elderly gentleman Yes, he, he was, well, when this was the, f I've worked with him three times now. This is the first time. And he was, he was already in his 70s. And off he went, like, oh you know, pff, like it went in and there was like no splash, nothing. <laughs> and then his like 12 year old kid went like, yeah, you know, Geronimo or whatever. And like off he went, you know, it was really high. And I like held my groin, you know, and, and pointed my toes. Anyway, it was like a, a whole weekend of this kind of thing where he was just like, you know, fearless, fearless. God. And we were flying back and his son jumped on the plane with us on the way back. And I was talking to his son and I was saying, I mean, it was this conversation, you know, is your dad like totally unafraid of anything? Like, is he just, is that just it? Like he just doesn't have that. It's like that guy, Alex Honnold who climbed mm. El Cap yeah, or whatever. No, he doesn't, he's missing an amygdala yeah, thing or whatever. He doesn't have it. He's not yeah. scared. And the son said, um, no, 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 he gets, he gets scared. And I was like, really? You know? And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. But he just, he just says, got to do it. Got to do it. <laughs> because, and your point, Em, is because you're scared, the only way to break out of that fear and inertia is to do the things you're scared of. Well, to even go, like, to do a really extreme version of the thing that you're scared of. Right. Somehow, I don't know why I got that logic, but I just discovered, I don't know. I don't for know why, people, I, yeah. as a very shy person, I signed up for this English-speaking union speech competition but I did and it wasn't even about the speech itself because my dad wrote the speech no, <laughs> it was I say, for anybody who doesn't know of course one of, this is a very important part of this conversation 
Emily's dad was the great Sir John Mortimer, who was a famous barrister, defended the Sex Pistols, but also the author of Rumpole of the Bailey and tons of novels and plays and screenplays. He was the guy who wrote the script for the TV version, the famous TV version of Brighthead Revisited, and all-round brilliant man, and particularly a man of the theatre. Yes, he was. Yes, he loved the theatre. Sorry for the interpolation. Yes, no, 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 thank you. Your dad wrote your speech. My dad wrote my speech, but it was about anarchy. (laughs) 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 And it was was really cool. It was a great speech. He's a great writer and everything. But so, I I, I mean, we kind of wrote it together, but basically he wrote it. It was all about Prince Love, Kropotkin and his pelicans. The pelicans being the proof that, that we should all live in a communist, anarchist sort of society because... Uh, he was a great natural scientist and he'd studied pelicans and apparently blind pelicans get fed by seeing pelicans, which was his proof that yes. sort of mutual aid is innate in all of us and that we are we are built to look after each other. Pelicans and also feed their young with the blood of their breasts. I did know that. Scratch yes. their own breasts with their bills, sharp bills and food, which is why it's a symbol of Christ. Isn't it my pelican daughters in King Lear? Aren't there pelican daughters in King Lear? But there that was pelican I, But I don't know yes. whether that's... They're not very nice, the daughters in King no, Lear. So it, doesn't make it doesn't add yeah, up. Yeah. Anyway. He wrote this very good speech. And I, so it wasn't that I had, was nervous about my speech. It was just, I can just remember walking to the podium with this speech in my hand, just thinking, I am actually literally going to die. Like, there is no way I'm going to get to the, that podium without dying. Like, I'm so scared. I could almost see my heart just sort of <laughs> like leaping out of my chest. And I can, I just can remember putting my speech down on the thing and just thinking, holy shit, this is just the worst. Like, and then I just started saying it, and I don't know what happened, but something happened. It wasn't like it was amazing, but it was kind of cool. Like, it was almost like this sort of hand took mine or something. That sounds mm. a bit sort of no, no. pretentious, but it was, it did feel like that. It felt sort of, oh, it's okay. And in that moment, I don't know why, but I just felt okay. And then I enjoyed it, mm. and it went quite well. And it was just like the such, I mean, I, I don't know whether it's just like it's the kind of, the anticipation was so horrifying. It's like banging your head against a brick wall. It's nice when it's over. And just the fact that it was actually happening and there was no going back made it, made it bearable. Or, or it was partly just communicating something to people and mm. feeling like in real life it was very hard to talk to people without feeling like an idiot. But in that circumstance, for some reason, I, I was saying something I cared about and I meant to people and I felt it. Like I could just say it and they were hearing it and mm. it was cool and it felt so nice just to be able to communicate without feeling like an idiot, which is what I spend my most of my life it's <laughs> feeling. Also, for those of us who want to communicate or feel a need to communicate for whatever reason, it's also a captive situation. It's slightly a hostage situation, yes, isn't it? Yes, Did that give you the sense that, oh, this is plays for me? Yeah, I guess so. That, or that I wanted Did you have an exciting time doing separate tables? Oh, well, then I had my first kiss on stage, Hello. which was a disaster. We're back to the beginning. Yes. <laughs> it was a disaster. I, it was a disaster, yes. It was, well, I, it's, the, the play itself was quite good, but, but it, it was, I was at St. Paul's School for Girls. We've moved on from Kensington. From Kensington High School to Girls. Yeah. I went to St. Paul's School for Girls. And I did plays then, having discovered that I liked doing my English-speaking union thing. I then did, I signed up for the school play, and the school play was with boys who were at the boys St Paul's school for boys and I'd never really met a boy and having being very shy as I said I had no sort of social interaction with anyone but particularly boys 
And so it was my first sort of encounter with boys aged about 15. And I had to kiss a boy from the boys' school in the play. And it was my first... I had kissed my cousin in a swimming pool once, but that was like, that was my only other interaction with a boy. Um, and um, anyway, and it was the first night of this play and it was all so exciting and everything. And I was playing this ex-model in the separate table, the Terence Raskin play. Yes. And um, we're all at some sort of sort of hotel in Bournemouth or something. Where sure. is it? I don't remember. Anyway, it. Seaside Hotel, and I have to kiss this major or something. And and he was quite handsome. And he was from the boys' school. I can't remember his name, but it will come to me. And I um I had lots of red lipstick on because I was playing an ex model, and I thought that's what models would do. And I a part of the the sort of setup was that I I, I had to kiss him, and then. They didn't have a really a set, so they didn't have the mirror that I was meant to look in on the stage. It wasn't a physical thing, but I was meant to look in the audience and sort of adjust myself having kissed him. Using the audience as a mirror. Using the audience Great. as a mirror. But the drawback was I didn't I couldn't see myself. So anyway, <laughs> there wasn't I, a mirror. I there wasn't a mirror. It was the audience. And um I kissed him and of course we hadn't actually kissed each other in the rehearsal because it was no. too embarrassing. But we finally, and it was like the first proper kiss of my life. And I was like, and it was just a mad sort of teenage smooch. And all the red lipstick went all over my face, but I had no idea. And then I went to sort of like do my, <laughs> to get myself together in the mirror. And everybody, like all these school children, just pissing, and their parents, just pissing themselves <laughs> laughing. And I didn't have any idea why until I went off the stage minutes later, like a whole scene later. Well, this is oh the perfect encapsulation of your career thereafter. The <laughs> mixture of sort of glamour and comedy, where glamour meets comedy coming around the other side sort of unwittingly, is your absolute... Yeah. No-one does it better. Right. I think you added layers to that character with that... <laughs> Not knowing that you had well, lipstick all over your face. Really so, was there a part that you did in your formative years that made you think, oh, wait, beyond the furries? Was there, a, <laughs> was there a part that made you think, this is for me? Did you know from quite early on? Yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to be an actor since I was really, really little. Why do you think? I, I, I don't know. I can't explain it. That's great for this podcast. <laughs> so, uh, I, but I respect it. Then I had, I was here at the, British American Drama Academy at Oxford over a summer, which was like a summer theater program that was coordinated between Yale and Oxford. I don't know how it worked exactly. It was some independent thing. And they got like great uh, English thespians to come and give us master classes and stuff. Mm. And so there was all kinds of, uh, you know, Timothy West, yeah. Prunella Scales, Derek Jacobi, didn't you say? Derek yeah, Jacobi, yeah. Um, your co-star in Medea, um, Fiona Shaw. Fiona Shaw. Yeah, but the really amazing teacher there was a guy who had run the Yale Drama School for a while, who, like Sanford Meisner, had a had had a tracheotomy and yes. had a voice box thing where you know it, it made him talk like this, and everything was like extremely mechanical, but he would talk about very emotional things. <laughs> and so, like, you know, he would talk about Chekhov. I mean, his whole course was designed uh, around scene study with Chekhov. And his whole thing, which I'm sure you've heard in various different ways, was what is called playing in action. And, and the way he defined it was, how do you want to make the other person feel? 
And the beauty of it was that it took all of the focus off of yourself and turned it into something active so that all your attention and energy was going into trying to affect somebody else on the stage with you. And so it took away your self-consciousness. I mean, it was a beautiful thing. And he taught it through these, these Chekhov scenes. And I remember him sort of saying like, you know, he was teaching the, some scene from the three sisters and I was playing Vershina and, you know, this is the last time you will ever see Masha. <laughs> How does that make you feel? <laughs> and like, you know, like a tear in his eye and everything. I mean, it was incredible. But he fell in love with my co-star, my, my scene partner. And these were different times. Apparently, he started inviting her over to his. Uh, <laughs> sorry, this is awful. But he started inviting her over to his uh, rooms, and he he brought my scene partner back to his uh, rooms at Oxford, and she told me that he had like a bunch of different voice box things that had different volumes. And that, like, when he wanted to get intimate, he would, like, reach <laughs> for the quiet one and, like, get, you know. Get, quiet. <laughs> get the Barry White one out. This is just, this is really anyway, taken an extraordinary turn. Anyway, this was another one of my, like, great inspirations. Um, amazing teacher. But and speaking about Chekhov, didn't you have an amazing experience at Oxford in in Russia, in Moscow? Well, yes, I went to the Moscow Art. You studied theater. Russian. I studied Russian at Oxford. At Oxford. Yes. And you went to the Art Moscow Arts, the famous Moscow Arts Theatre. Yes. And sort of studied there, studied acting there. I mean, I if you, yes, I did. I had been there on my gap year to Moscow, and I had befriended the woman that ran the Nimirovich Danchenko Museum, which is he was the unsung hero of the Moscow Arts Theatre because it was set up by him and Chekhov and Stanislavski. Nimirovich Danchenko was the kind of very soulful, quieter one. Stanislavski was the sort of flamboyant flamboyant one that irritated the hell out of Chekhov constantly because he was always sort of talking about sort of, you know, psychological realism and everything. And Chekhov kept saying, they're funny. You it's know, a comedy. They're funny plays and everything. And, and Nimirovich Danchenko was this, the soulful one. And my... Um, friend worked in the Nimirovich Danchenko Theatre Museum. And so I had befriended her and she was called Genrietta Nikolaevna and she was really cool and she smoked loads of cigarettes. And um, she got me on to a course at the Moscow Arts Theatre when I came back in my, mm. in my third year. And um, I studied there, but I didn't really learn anything. Well, I mean, I kind of did. I, I basically just got a big crush on my acting teacher and didn't concentrate at all on what I was meant to be learning. But I, I, I did do a play in Russian on the, a scene in Russian from Lermontov's Masquerade. On the Moscow Arts On the stage the famous... of the wow. Moscow Arts Theatre, yeah. So and I saw the most thing, the thing I remember the most is Oleg Yefremov was the, running the Os- Moscow Arts Theatre at the time, who was this great sort of figure in the theatre there. And and I saw a production of Uncle Vanya with him as Astrov and Smoktanovsky as um, Uncle Vanya. And Smoktanovsky's the guy that was Hamlet, you know, the, the, oh, yeah, the, the white-haired Hamlet in the famous Russian film of yeah. it. And I saw him be about three years before he died, be Uncle Vanya. And yeah. I, I really can remember like that, like it was yesterday. He was wow. amazing. So I can remember him blowing his cigar and 
and and batting the the smoke away, you know. And I don't, I don't, I just stayed with me. I can really、mm. see it. But yeah, I didn't learn much because I just got this sort of fearful crush on this guy. Yes, you're a student. That's what it's for. And I can remember going. He, I finally got him back to my house. I had a sort of party with all the students, <laughs> and、um, he came back to my house and I, my flat. And he came, and we all had dinner. And I was so excited he was there. And then I just got so drunk. And then he went out onto the balcony and took me out onto the balcony. And I suddenly started—I couldn't believe this was happening. And I suddenly started feeling really ill. But I couldn't leave because I was standing on the balcony with this guy I was so into. And、um, and I needed to be sick. And I just was quietly sick into my hand as <laughs> as he sort of like <laughs> he was sort of talking about the moon and you know. But, the, but he was so into what he was saying, he didn't notice I was standing behind him quietly vomiting and vomiting. Yeah, but I had to sort of back away. Wow. And It never really, you know, nothing came. I can't believe that. <laughs> If only she'd been paired with my acting teacher. <laughs>、exactly. No, God. And the point is, I suppose, despite this, this sort of, you know, coming from theatre royalty, your dad's immense involvement, you must have had. He worked with everybody, Olivier Gilgud in his productions, and you must have had an immense exposure to the life of the theatre. It must have seen. I suppose both glamorous and kind of ordinary at the same time. That was just the landscape of your life. That's a question. Oh,、um, I mean, it was a, an upward inflection. <laughs> I, was, I was on my way somewhere else, but maybe I should. I guess it was very much around me, but I, I think it's weird. Like I was. Not necessarily. I mean, I can remember very clearly Laurence Olivier. They they did. My dad wrote a play called A Voyage Around My Father,、mm. and it was initially、uh, Rex Harrison and and then Alec Guinness, and then、mm. and then Laurence Olivier was in with Alan Bates was in the film of it, and they filmed it in our house that my dad because it was an autobiographical play, and they filmed it in the house that my dad grew up in that my mom still lives in and everything.、Um, And I can remember Laurence Olivier as a little girl. I can remember one of my earliest memories is breaking into his trailer with my friend who lived down the road and and eating all his lion bars and <laughs> and seeing this wig on a sort of stand and and it was just so sort of mysterious and strange and smelt of sort of sort of old men and makeup and it was just sort of and then I can remember seeing him. In the garden, he had. They, he was. He was really quite old. It was one of the last things he did, and and he couldn't remember any of his lines. But I mean, he's a mate. It's one of his great performances. You, has anybody here seen that it, it, performance it, it, of Olivier's in Voyage from My Father? You can watch you it on find, YouTube. You actually,、that? I mean, it's just. It's just. It, it's a really incredible, incredible. performance. But、yeah. he couldn't remember any of his lines, and so they. I can remember. Like it was yesterday, seeing they 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 wrote the lines on big, huge idiot boards that they sort of pinned up on the trees, and and I can remember my dad saying that they said when somebody came up and sort of nervously asked, you know, Sir Lawrence Olivier when he was going to start speaking in the scene, and he said, "I shall speak as I approach the dialogue." <laughs> But anyway, so I remember this magical thing happened where our house was completely transformed, our own house. And all the furniture was taken out, and much nicer, sort of to me, much sort of furniture that matched was put in it. And and these actors acted out scenes in our garden and our house, and then they had a kind of wrap party, and you found sort of for months afterwards, like plastic cups in the bushes. And and I saw my mum dancing with the sort of props team, sort of whirling round on this dance floor in the garden, and it all felt so 
magical and exciting. And and actually, Laurence Olivier pretended to die. He was playing my father's father, and he pretended to die in the bed that my father's father had actually died in. So it was this kind of hall of mirrors thing. And my dad always acted out plays on the stairs. He was a lonely, quite shy little boy, actually, weirdly. You would never think it. And so he would act out plays on the stairs as a child. That's part of the play and that's in the film. And I acted out plays on the stairs and my sister and brothers and everything did too. Uh, who's here tonight? <laughs> um, and, um, and so to see that was kind of amazing and exciting and strange and to sort of, I don't know. So there was a feeling of like, oh, this is somehow part of my life and I understand mm -hmm. it but I I wasn't that like enchanted by I was much more lowbrow in my tastes so I wanted to really be Torval and Dean I, I was obsessed by uh, <laughs> I was obsessed by ice dances <laughs> even though I was no good at ice dancing but I could I just sort of wanted like feathers in my hair and sequins and that was what I really wanted. But you did start out having a stage career and I think we should say at this point that unlike every single guest I've had on this podcast who is, by definition, really into <laughs> performing on stage. Em, you're kind of an apostate about it. You, you know, you have done it, of course, but really are not... Into it. Into it. <laughs> no, really. I, I think it's actually fantastic <laughs> to have the sort of recorded uh, testimony of someone who's not... who finds it problematic and difficult and troubling. Terrifying, terrifying. So, but you did start out, didn't you? And what was it that started to give you problems when you after you left Oxford and became a professional actress and started doing stuff in big stages with amazing people what happened that <laughs> unbalanced you I think I was just probably quite unbalanced a eh? and yeah. I was young and I, so I was like sort of not getting enough sleep and yeah. drinking too much probably and just as I said as I've as you've heard I had I was very kind of repressed as a child because so, I was so shy so I didn't I, I did a lot of making up for lost time in terms of boys and sort of parties and and so I was kind of appearing on the stage basically with just a kind of extreme hangover and very fraught <laughs> and sort of underslept at most times so I, I think that just sort of terror uh, was amplified by the fact that I was I was not in a sort of fit state to be doing it and I but maybe you were not in a fit state to be doing it because you were terrified too. Yes, it is terrifying. I mean, I can I can still remember those moments of in the play that we did, like looking at that kind of red light that goes green on the, you know backstage, and you're waiting in the wings, and you're just like, there's a light that tells you when you've got to go on, and it starts off red, and then at a certain point it goes green, and you just have to walk on, and it's like you're just looking at this red light, thinking, what the fuck am I doing this? Like I could be doing anything else. Yes. I could just be sitting home reading a book, like. This is like bungee jumping times a million. Like, mm. I don't want to do... Everything in my body is telling me not to do it. And then the light fucking gets green and you're like, oh, God. And again, I get all sorts of sort of terrifying, intrusive thoughts where I think I'm going to shout things out. You said to The Guardian, your greatest fear was shouting something inappropriate either in the audience at the theatre or on stage. Yes. Dolly, my best friend Dolly, gets it too. She thinks she's going to shout the word mint. Mint. Which are out, but either in the audience or on stage. But I have worse things I can't even permit to, but I think I'm going to shout out or I'm going to leap into the audience or... I mean, yeah. It's just that thing of everybody's being so well behaved and like every, they paid good money to be there, but they're all sitting there and there's no 
everybody's sort of so respectful and there's this sort of quiet sort of thing and like why is everybody not so your unconscious brain wants to ruin it, it. it <laughs> ruin it for everybody <laughs> yeah, yes yeah and so that's going on all the time and that becomes a very powerful and difficult thing to deal with so better to just sort of Take yourself away from temptation. Yes, and then I had a, I had a, I had a really bad experience where things went terribly wrong. I played the role of Portia in The Merchant of Venice in Scotland, and it was a debacle. And I haven't really recovered from that. Like that was like I just oh, I don't know. I don't know whether. <laughs> so I fell in love with a guy playing Pisanio. There, there is a, a little bit of a theme <laughs> developing on both sides of the aisle here. Um, I got really distracted and I was just sort of like, I also was in Scotland and I sort of, I sort of just was like, no one I know is going to come to this place. It's too far away for anyone. I don't know. I was just like, that's uh, and I that's sort of felt like, I don't, it doesn't matter because I'm just far from home and I can just sort of like concentrate on whether trying to get this guy to be into me. And um, anyway, and I also felt like I sort of know, I know, you know, I've studied this play a lot and I know it. And I sort of got, my dad was all into the Merchant of Venice because it was all about, you know, justice. justice. I don't know. I think I was extremely arrogant and also just completely distracted and young and idiotic. And I didn't prepare it enough. It was one of those things where it was literally the first night, the press night or whatever, when everybody's gathered. Mm. And it's like the, th the one that has to really be good. Right. Where I suddenly was just like, I don't know what I'm doing and I haven't worked on this at all hard enough to be good. And I suddenly just got that awful thing where you're where oh, you forget gosh. the lines and your head is going, I can't remember the line. I'm not going to be able to remember the line. I'm not going to, I've completely forgotten all of it. And then it does come, but it comes at the like very last second. The final nanosecond oh, my before God. you have to say it. And yes, and I was just oh, like, I, I literally, I went off stage in the interval and I had pretty much sort of bleeding palms from my fingernails. <laughs> and I was just like, oh my God, this is awful. And I'm letting everybody down and most of all myself. And I was just so, I hate myself. Like, this is so bad. And anyway, so I thought I gave myself, I thought I was going to give myself a pep talk, yes. which I, I thought this is the only thing for it. I don't know. I just have to give myself a pep talk. So I looked in the mirror at the dressing room and, and, and I sat there just sort of looking at myself, just going, come on, you can do this. I mean, I knew I didn't know what I was doing, but I thought just pretend like when you go back out, just do it with confidence. Like just pretend you know what you're doing and something will happen and, and just like stride on with confidence and don't let this kind of, you know, whatever upend you anyway. So I was like, okay, 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 I've got this. And, and the first scene in the, after the interval was me packing for, for Venice and ordering my ladies and waiting to come and pack because so, we had to leave for Venice. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to do this really confidently and then it will all fall into place. So I just sort of strode on saying to my ladies and waiting, you know, come to Venice or whatever. And I was so busy being confident that I completely forgot that this enormous fiberglass pillar denoting Belmont was flying in from the ceiling and I just coincided with it completely. Like my nose and the pillar just went boink. Oh, and I knocked myself out and broke my nose and I was... <laughs> prostate. I mean, I was lying, just my feet were poking out from beneath this pillar. Like and they the, had the next. The Wicked Witch of the West. Yes. It was like the Wicked Toto. Witch of Why are you pointing to me? Well, because of Toto. <laughs> oh, oh, wow. <laughs> Bring it back round. Oh, my God. Yes. You were knocked out cold. I was knocked out cold. And so then I, I, I went backstage and I can remember sitting on a chair and someone saying, can you go back on? And I was like, <laughs> yes, I think so, maybe. And I went back on. 
And I got to the end of the play. I, of course, people liked me much more after I'd been knocked out. <laughs> I, I probably was a bit better after I'd been knocked out. <laughs> Apparently, as I was doing the quality of Mercy is not straight or whatever, I got these two enormous black eyes. I mean, and and it, was, it was a nightmare that was a tiny bit saved by me knocking myself out. But the nightmare continued. Like, it was like I, I never worked out how right. to do that part. And it was like dead man walking for sort of three months. And the awful thing about that one was that it was the bar was in the theater that we would go to. And I was in disguise because apparently Portia's blonde, which I didn't realize until I did that play, but it says one line, says she's blonde. So I had a blonde wig. And so nobody recognized me in the bar and I'd hear them just say horrible things about me. I can remember getting a drink from the bar and the man, there was a man in a kilt saying, I thought Portia was meant to be charming. <laughs> that girl was so irritating. Her voice was so irritating. Was like... Anyway, I haven't really recovered oh, from that. God, I'm not surprised. <laughs> In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Right, that's the end of Act One of my live recorded chat with Emily Mortimer and Alessandra Nivola. Poor Emily. <laughs> Flattened and then humiliated as Portia. And no wonder she's had a long time recovering from that. But please come back and join me for Act Two. It only gets better and better and better from here. If you want to hear what happened when Sarah Kane's legendary play Blasted was narrated live while the action was going on on stage by Sir John Mortimer, Emily's father? What happened when John met Tom Cruise? The fallout from when Alessandra bit Helen Mirren's tattoo? How an elderly actor called in sick to the stage door. What Emily and Alessandro think about the freedom these days to be transgressive on stage and in the rehearsal room. What sharing a dressing room with Bradley Cooper is like. And how acting on stage is like scuba diving. You're going to want to hear the rest of this chat. Please come back and join me for Act Two. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 